So much of modern motherhood is spent wishing we were doing better, whether we're comparing ourselves to other moms or to the ideal mom we assumed we'd be before we had kids. But this wishing takes us further and further away from joy, and it stops us from being the mom we want to be. I'm Rebecca Brownwright, and I'm here to help you focus on connection, because connecting more deeply with yourself and with your kids will help you forget about mom comparisons. Connection will help you resolve behavior issues with your kids, and connection will help you live a life full of real joy, because that's what you and your kids deserve. Pause and connect with me for a moment to listen to discussions about connection and motherhood, finding your purpose, smashing cultural narratives, and so much more. This is Pause and Connect. Welcome to Pause and Connect. I'm Rebecca Brownwright, and this is episode 23 called We Have to Stop Moralizing Our Child's Emotions. Now, before I get into that, um, it's been a while since I've recorded. We were out of town a few weeks ago, and it took a while to get back into the swing of things. We got to go to New England. We're from Utah and California, so we don't go back to the east part of the United States very often. And it was so beautiful. But we had such a hard time with our kids, and I just wanted to put that out here because there was a lot of fighting. We rented a car that was just a car, and they're used to having a van where they can kind of spread out a little bit, um, which is sounding so privileged as I'm saying that out loud, but it really made a difference. They just fought so much in that back seat where they had to all be together. And um, so I just wanted to say that because this is a parenting podcast where I'm always trying to share advice and tips on how we can how we can connect better with our kids and use that for, for better discipline and, and better togetherness. But uh, it's hard sometimes. It is just hard. And I just wanted to say that and put that out there uh, because... Um, we we just all need to hear that sometimes that it is just hard. <laughs> so anyway, back to this episode, episode 23 called we have to stop moralizing our child's emotions. I want to start with a little story. So, when I was a little girl, my mom sometimes ran errands in this shopping center that had this huge mostly empty parking lot and it had speed bumps. And she would do this really funny thing where she would drive over the speed bumps and she'd like bounce around really, she'd exaggerate it and bounce her body around. And she'd say, Rebecca, stop making it bumpy in here. And then she'd say, no more bumps. That was, that was kind of the, the, the best part of it when she'd say, no more bumps, Rebecca. And I would laugh hysterically. I'd shout at her, you know, in the funny way that kids do, like, it's not my fault, mom. It's not my fault. I'm not doing it. You know, all the while I'm begging her to keep going. You know, this is just the funnest thing. It got to the point where whenever I recognized the parking lot, I'd get unbuckled (laughs) because I was a child of the 80s and 90s, you know, and I'd go and I'd sit in the back of our huge van and then I'd bounce all over the place as she went over these speed bumps. I'd beg her to go faster and and bumpier. And so I think she was up there jiggling the steering wheel and hitting the steer- the speed bumps at angles so that we could we could make it more fun, make the bouncing more fun. And sometimes this was the best. When I had a friend with us, I would be so giddy for them to experience this hilarity with me too. And I, I, I now wonder if my mom thought, okay, this is ridiculous to act this way in front of a child that's not my own. But she went along with it and it was so fun. And I, I can remember sitting in the back seat unbuckled with my friend and just bouncing around and we are laughing so hard and just having the best time. So when my child was about the same age, about probably four, maybe three, I'm not sure how old I was. Um, 
I realized that there were speed bumps in her dance class parking lot. And I was so excited to share this tradition with her. I I couldn't wait to do this with her. And so I can remember, I can remember the moment. I was looking in the rearview mirror as we're coming up to the first bump and I'm getting ready to jiggle that steering wheel and I'm eager to see her expression when I share this hilarious fun game with her. So we go over the first bump at an angle and I shouted, oh, Lydia, no more bumps. And I remember she looked confused. So then the next bump came up and I'm smiling and I'm, I say, Lydia, no more bumps. But now... She wasn't confused. She was upset. And she said, I'm not doing it, mom. You are. You're driving. So I figured that she was just a slow learner for this game. So as the next bump came up, I again shouted, Lydia, no more bumps. And she was mad. She yelled at me, I'm not doing it, mom. Stop. And then she started crying. Now, I was shocked because this it's a silly game. It was a silly speed bump game. It had been such a fun thing for me and for my friends. So I knew it was kid approved. I'd experienced it, right? So how was this bringing my child to tears? Well, I'm a slow learner sometimes. So I actually kept at it. Every week I would try again because I just knew that one day my child was going to catch the vision and enjoy this silly game. But she never did. And... Here's the sad part. I actually scolded her for it. This was before I understood child development. This is before I understood that kids do well when they can. This so so I thought that she was being obstinate. And by the way, I want to say she gave me permission to share this story. It's it's kind of a silly joke in our family now. Um So, but anyway, back to when she was about four, I told her that this is just a fun game. She shouldn't get so mad at me. I loved it when I was younger. How come she couldn't, you know, and, and I, I, I shamed her. Eventually I stopped because it wasn't fun for either of us. And I was really disappointed. I wanted her to have that same fun that I had had. And, and it sounds so silly, but it really was disappointing because it was such a fun memory for me. Why couldn't my child appreciate it as well? Right. But then a few years later, her little sister came along and began dance class as a preschooler. So I was like, should I try it again? So I tried out the speed bump game with her when we went to dance class. And she was delighted, Emma. Emma was delighted. She thought it was hilarious. She loved bumping around. They were were buckled. (laughs) I didn't let them get unbuckled. Um, But still, you know, we kind of bumped around. And she would beg for more. And she thought it was so funny that I was blaming her for the bumps. it, it, it just didn't bother her at all. So, but the funny thing is her big sister, Lydia, who was the one who hated the speed bumps at her age, and she still hated them. She now started playing along. And so she was like, no more bumps, Emma. And she was shouting that right along with me. And she was laughing as we were doing it. So I thought, well, maybe Lydia has outgrown it. <laughs> maybe she can finally enjoy this game. And so I threw her name in again. And I started saying, no more bumps, Lydia. But immediately she was mad at me. She's like, stop, mom. I hate when you say that to me. And she's yelling at me. I didn't understand what I know now. So again, I shamed her and I, and I said to her, Lydia, why can't you just have fun like your sister? See, I interpreted her reaction as dragging us down intentionally, as, as being um, uncooperative, as, as, as dampening the mood, Right. If I could go back, I would definitely undo that one. I still feel terrible. Like, why did I shame her for not enjoying 
this silly, really, truly ridiculous thing, right? So over time, I figured out that Lydia didn't mind if we played this game with other people, but she didn't want to be the one who was being jokingly blamed for the bumps. So maybe she's a bit more literal or maybe it's just not fun for her. I don't really know. But what I do know is that I really messed up. I never should have shamed her. I never should have pushed her to try and make her like this thing. When she first told me she didn't like the game as a preschooler, I should have let go of my vision of this fun bonding activity and I just should have stopped. When she enjoyed watching her sister have a good time, but she didn't want any attention directed at her later, I should have let her have fun in that way. Because after all, who am I to say what's fun for another person, right? Now, again, I know this is really a silly story and it really doesn't have a lot of consequence in the grand scheme of things, but it is a very good example of something that us parents do all the time. We have these images of what we think our children should do or feel or how they should react. And we get disappointed when they don't do, feel, or react in the way that we want. When they do it differently, we're disappointed. The other thing we do is we sort of rank our children's reactions and behaviors. So when Emma responded to the no more bumps game, I told Lydia she should be like her sister. Now remember, for whatever reason, this game just didn't sit right with Lydia, but it did with Emma, and I ranked that. I made one reaction more valuable, more desirable, more acceptable than the other. So I moralized my children's emotions and reactions. Now again, silly example, but as you're listening, are you thinking of any examples in your own life? Is there something that your child does or doesn't do that you've given a moral value or a moral ranking to? There are two mindsets that can help us parents do this less often. One is to meet our children where they are. And the second is to remember that children do well when they can. So I'm going to talk about both of those. Let's start with the concept of meeting our children where they are. Now, I posted recently on my social media about this concept um, because my little boy and our cat gave me a really good illustration of it. So my little boy, Rex, and our family cat, Caesar. They don't get along. Caesar's really skittish around Rex. He's an older cat now. He's like 15 years old, 16 years old. And so Rex is only seven. So Caesar's been old since Rex was born. Now he was a little more patient with Rex's older sisters when they were babies, you know, and they would kind of be a little bit rough with him. He, he didn't, he didn't get so upset with them. And I think that's just because he was a, a younger cat then. But since Rex has been born, he's, he's been an older cat and he's been at this stage where he just doesn't want to put up with the nonsense that kids give to animals. Right. Um, and we, we do our best to teach our kids how to, how to respect the animals and, and we try very hard to protect them. But sometimes of course they get a little bit rough before we can get to them. So anyway, Rex has gotten a few tiny nips and a couple scratches when he's been too rough with Caesar, but Rex is older now and he's learning that if he wants Caesar's attention, he's going to have to be sweet and gentle. He's, he's learned that just from the experience of Caesar running away or, or scratching. So since Rex began changing his approach to Caesar, Caesar has enjoyed being around him more. So I'll find the two of them snuggling much more often. And Rex is really happy that he's getting these, these bonding moments with our cat. The last time I found them snuggling, I realized that this is exactly like parenting. (laughs) We have to meet our kids where they are. Just like Caesar fights back or runs away when Rex is too rough with him, Our kids are going to fight back or withdraw when we try and interact with them in a way that isn't comfortable for them. If we insist 
that they style their hair a certain way, if we push them to share when they don't want to, if we make them do a sport they aren't interested in, if we refuse to hear them when they have objections to something, if we insist that this no more bumps game is really fun and they really hate it, then they're going to fight back or retreat. And they should, honestly, right? Don't we want children who can stand up for themselves and let people know when they're uncomfortable? (laughs) Now, the joke I see often on social media is that, of course, we want kids who know how to stand up for themselves. Just not today and just not when they're standing up to us parents, right? (laughs) And it's a really funny joke because it's true. I mean, I, I hate when my kids fight back. You know, of course, why can't they wear the outfit that I want them to wear? Why can't they like the dinner their dad made? Why can't they do the chore? Why can't they stop being so shy and go befriend that lonely kid? Why can't they stop being so outgoing and sit still and listen to the teacher? Why can't they like the no more bump speed game for crying out loud, you know? And it goes on and on and on. But when we respect their personalities, their likes and dislikes, their communication styles, their current limitations, we actually help them to grow because they feel safe with us. They feel safe to be who they are. And because of that, then they're in a place where their brain can learn what needs to be learned. They feel more connected to us and that allows them to grow and flourish without kicking against the limits that we as parents want to be setting up for them and their personalities. So just think of my cute cat Caesar when you need a reminder. He's gonna scratch or run away if Rex pulls his tail. And he deserves to do that because he doesn't deserve to have his tail pulled. But if Rex is gentle and kind, the two of them can enjoy time together. So it's the same with our kids. We need to meet them where they are. Now on this social media post about Rex and Caesar, a friend commented that she has used the love language test with her kids to understand how to better meet them where they are. And I like that. She said she found one child loves words of affirmation, but doesn't like physical touch. So, and it surprised her, but instead of trying to get her kid to, for example, like physical touch, she's accepting and honoring this part of her child. And she's balancing those two types of interaction better in a way that her child appreciates and wants. And isn't that such a lovely gift? Can you imagine if you didn't like hugs, but your parent always forced them on you because they thought that was the best way to show love? You wouldn't feel loved. You'd feel smothered and disrespected. And you might, you might've been okay with with some hugs, but that smothering could drive you to begin to hate them altogether, right? So think about your child. What is something they do that drives you crazy? And it's okay that they do things that drive us crazy because we're two different personalities, right? You're a human being with your own wants, desires, and dislikes and likes, and your child is a human being with their own wants, desires, dislikes, and likes, and we're trying to coexist together. So it's okay that some things are gonna drive us crazy. But ask yourself, are you being obvious about that thing that drives you crazy? And are you trying to change your child in some way? And then ask yourself, what what can you let go of? Does this child need to be changed? Let me give you an example. When my oldest child was about seven, we were having some really challenging times. And I took her to a play therapist and expected the therapist to fix my child. You know, I thought I was going to drop her off. Therapist was going to do her work. And, you know, after some time, my child was going to be so much better. But my wonderful, wonderful therapist instead showed me how to play with my child. She showed me how to connect with my child. She showed me how to see my child and accept her as she is. And that's when we began to heal. It wasn't my child who needed the fixing after all, was it? It was my perception of my child that needed fixing. 
And I was able to repair as I connected with my child. Because now that I was meeting her where she was, I was connecting. I was learning who she was and what she needed, wanted, liked, and disliked. And then I was able to treat her the way she wanted to be treated, not the way I thought she should appreciate and want to be treated, right? So again, just think about that silly speed bump example. I thought she should appreciate this and I forced it on her and then shamed her when she didn't like it. She didn't need that. She didn't need to be changed. She didn't need to like this game. I needed to respect her that she didn't like that game. And in later years, when she liked being the one making it fun for her sister, I should have respected that and said, oh, she wants to enjoy this game this way. But I never did that because I was trying to fix her. Now, if you want some ideas on how to connect with your child without much effort, episode nine of my podcast offers some fun and easy-ish ways to connect with your child. I'll link to that in the show notes. Because deliberate connection activities are so helpful in helping us to understand our children better and it helps us to meet them where they are. And that's what helped me to stop pushing my child. (laughs) You know, I keep going back to the speed bump example, but there's been lots of other examples. And connecting with my child, deliberately connecting with my child is really what helped me to see my child as, as who they are and to change that need to try and change them. This work is so important. Coming to understand your child and to accept them for who they are is one of the greatest gifts we can give to our children. Now, it's not easy with each child because sometimes certain personalities grate against each other in really difficult ways. And it seems to be that that's just kind of parenthood, that like we get a child who just their personality does not jive with our personality. It just it just seems to be that way. I, I haven't done any actual research on it, but based on my friends and, and the people that I follow on social media, it seems to be that way. So let's embrace that, okay? We're gonna have children who have personalities that don't jive with us all the time. And it's also not easy at every single stage. You know, some, you might have a child that you connect really well with, with hardly any effort at three, four, and five, and then they turn six and oh my gosh, you can't handle them anymore. It, they're a different child. You know, that happens too. So some stages are harder than others and, and it might be hard for you, but not your partner. And it, and sometimes your partner might have a hard stage, and you, but it's not hard for you. So this this stuff is normal and we need to we need to embrace that and understand that. But it's also our job as parents to work through that. And finding ways to connect and interact positively is going to help us do exactly that. It's going to help us work through it. It's going to help us set aside our frustrations and actually see our children most of the time. (laughs) Because we can't be perfect at this all the time. And there's going to be some times where we just cannot see eye to eye. We cannot see what our children are trying to do. That happens. But if we, if we, let's say, let's say right now it's, 40% 40% of the time, you're not understanding your kid. And the, and there, so there's all this, all this fighting. But let's say you do all these connection activities. You work so hard to be connected. And then that number reduces down to just 10% of the time. So now 90% of the time, you guys are seeing each other. You're understanding each other. And then there's that 10% that's a little bit hard or very hard. But still, it's 10% as opposed to the 40%. So that's that's what we're aiming for here. We are not aiming for perfection. We're not ever under the... The idea that it's going to be, if we just do these connection activities, if we just remember this concept that everything's going to be perfect, it won't, it will never be perfect. But if we focus on trying to see our children where they are, and if we do this through connection and deliberate connection activities, then 
we're going to increase the times that we are getting along with our children and the times that we are seeing them. And so that, that makes, that makes it easier and it makes our bonds better. All right. So the second mindset that will help with this process to stop moralizing our child's emotions is to remember that children do well when they can. I talk about this a lot because it's so powerful. Dr. Ross Green introduced this concept and it's very, very valuable. It's not that children do well when they feel like it or that children do well when they want to. It's that children do well when they can. Think about that for a minute, okay? Doesn't that change things? We've been taught that children are trying to make us mad. We've been taught that they are manipulating us or deliberately um, disobeying. But when you use the concept that children do well when they can, then you see them so much differently. It's, It's not that they're deliberately trying to make things difficult. It's that they're having a hard time. And isn't that hard, isn't that, excuse me, easier to deal with, right? If, if you think that your child is refusing to enjoy the speed bump game because, because she wants to make you mad, well, then you're mad, right? You, you feel angry. At least I did. I felt so angry in response. But had I realized that she just, it, it was beyond her capabilities of enjoying it, then it's so much easier to let go. I don't need to fight about that, Right. It, and, and, and remember that this is, when I say that the children do well when they can, it's often about like in this moment, right? Because it doesn't mean that they can't do better later. So Lydia is 13 now. If I tried the speed bump game with her right now, she would roll her eyes at me and tell me, this is so dumb. Why are you doing this? Okay. She would not get mad and scream at me like she once did. Why? That's because she has developed the skill to deal with undesirable situations a little bit better. And it wouldn't bother her as much as it did when she was four. But when she was four, she didn't have that skill. All she knew was that she hated the way she felt when I played that game and she wanted it to stop. And screaming at me was her best tool in that moment. Now, I did not understand this back then. I thought she was overreacting. I thought she was trying to ruin our time together because I didn't understand that children do well when they can I thought they do well when they want to, so I interpreted her screams as defiance and obstinance. But if I had understand that children do well when they can, I would have handled it differently. So let's go back and examine it through the lens of children do well when they can. All right? So had I understood that children do well when they can, I would have interpreted her screaming as communication about her needs. So I would have said to myself, wow, she's screaming at me. She's telling me she really doesn't like this and she wants it to stop. So I would have apologized while I was driving. And then when we parked the car, I would have gotten out and given her a hug. And I would have asked her, why did that bother you, sweetie? And she may or may not have been able to tell me why it bothered her because she was four, right? But she would have felt seen. If If I would have said, hey, that really seemed to bother you. I'm sorry. I wonder why it bothered you. She would have felt seen. And if she couldn't give me an an answer as to why it bothered her, it would have been okay, right? Because I still would have validated her. I would have said, wow, it, it sure looks like you were bothered. I'm sorry. Then I might have or might not have, but I might have felt like maybe I'll tell her why I did it. And so I might have shared with her how much I liked the game when I was four. And then that might have prompted her to look at it with new eyes and she might have wanted to try it. 
again, you know, or she might've still stayed firm in her hatred of that speed bump game. But either way, she and I would have understood each other and I wouldn't have taken it personally and she wouldn't have felt like she has to fight against me, right? So I wish I had known the concept that children do well when they can back then because I really turned a molehill into a mountain, didn't I? And I really hurt my four-year-old's sense of safety. She lost trust that I would care for her emotions, didn't she? So I'm really sad and sorry that I did that. However, I am grateful that I know this concept now that children do well when they can, and I can use it every day. And I do (laughs) because kids melt down every day. And this tool is so helpful. This mindset is so helpful. Now, sometimes it works really well and I use it in the way I just described that I wish I had used it. I use it in the moment, but sometimes I don't use it in time. Sometimes, like I say, our trip back east was so frustrating with those kids fighting. And sometimes I got frustrated and I let it show. And sometimes I made big mistakes in how I handled my frustration. But the thing about this concept is that, you know, the concept that children do well when they can. The thing about this concept is that it allows me to easily bring us back to center once I remember it. So if my kids are screaming in the backseat like they were, and I turn around and I say something that's over the top, I actually did. I said, I am never taking you on vacation again. And I I did that that thing. Why do parents do that? And my 13-year-old said, yeah, right, you will. Like she, she sees through us now. But anyway, that's an aside. But so I did that. But then later I remembered this phrase. I remembered this concept, children do well when they can. And it's a phrase that humbles me. It reminds me to apologize when I mess up. So I did. And it helps me to have conversation, conversations with my kids to help us understand each other. And so I did. And we, we talked about what we could do to not fight so much. And we came up with some solutions that sometimes worked and often didn't, but we kept working at it. Um, so that's what I love about this concept that children do well when they can, because sometimes I don't use it in time. Sometimes I forget it and sometimes I I blow up, but I can still use it after to humble myself, apologize and work forward with my kids. So it's good whether I use it before I get upset or after I do. And of course I want to use it before I get upset more often than not. And it's kind of like that 40%, 90% thing I was talking about earlier. I do because, because this phrase, this concept. It's, it's a part of my daily life now. It is a part of everything that I believe. So it's easy to use it 90% of the time. And so we have much fewer problems. Um, so like I say, my kids are sometimes fighting over insignificant to me things, but of course they're significant to them. And when using the phrase children do well when they can, it helps me to meet my kids where they are. It stops me from ranking their problems, you know, especially when they're fighting with each other. Uh, you want to sometimes say, well, this kid obviously is not doing something as bad as this kid, but it stops me from even doing that, which is so great, right? Because children don't need their feelings or their actions ranked. They really don't. They need us to see them where they are and help them move forward. Um, It stops me from assigning moral value to their feelings, and it helps me keep things in perspective so that I can react in a way that isn't going to delegitimize anyone's feelings or personalities. Now, of course, I mess up. I already shared some of that with you. Um, Here's another example. The other day, our 13-year-old didn't want to go to church, which which is fine. You don't always want to go to church. Um, But she was telling us when we were walking out the door, 
And so that flustered, that flustered me. That's kind of, uh, that's, that's one of my parenting. I, I don't know if I want to use the word trigger, but it's, it's, it's that concept. Any time that we're running late and a kid has a problem, it is, it is really hard for me. You know, we all have our thing that is really hard for me. So she's having this problem as we're walking out the door and I'm, I just, I'm just not there for it. I, I can't handle it in this moment. Um, so I wasn't in a good place to meet her where she was. So I ended up giving her an ultimatum and I, I, I regret that I shouldn't have given her an ultimatum because she chose to come to church, but she felt forced. Now, here's the thing. I, I got to see the end of this, this one really quick. Sometimes parenting is nice where you get to learn your lesson really quick. And this was one of those times. So once we were at church, she just kept complaining about how the lights were so bright and her head was hurting. So we were like, oh my gosh, I think she's having a migraine. And it turned out she she probably was. It was really mild, but she probably was having a migraine and she'd never had one before. So earlier, as we're walking out the door, she she was telling us, I just don't feel like going to church. She wasn't able to articulate what she was really feeling because she'd never experienced that pain before. And it, it was just coming on. So it wasn't like a full-blown major headache. So she couldn't really say, I have a headache. It was just like, I just don't feel like it. Will you please trust me? She said that too. Will you please trust me? I don't feel like it. And now that I'm saying that out loud, like we, we should have, we should have just trusted her. Um, and had we stopped, had we met her where she was, had we reminded ourselves that children do well when they can, we would have seen her not refusing and not being defiant, but we would have seen what she was saying as a communication about a deeper need, right? So that's that's the idea here. When you try and meet children where they are, when you stop moralizing your child's emotions, when you remember that children do well when they can, then you see their refusals not as defiance, but as communication about a deeper need. So she went home and she rested and I immediately apologized. I actually apologized before. Like once we got to church, I sent her a text. She was sitting at the end of the pew and I, I sent a text and I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like I messed up there. I didn't know what to do and I acted in a way that I shouldn't have acted and I'm really sorry. And she forgave me, thankfully. Um, if she hadn't wanted to, that would have been okay too. She might've needed time. But, um, but again, that idea of children do well when they can, that's what helped me apologize because I had, I had pushed her and, and I, I hadn't stopped to think what she was trying to communicate to me. So then anyway, when we realized that the, the, there was probably a migraine happening here, I apologized again. And, and then later when she was feeling better, we were able to talk about what to do the next time something like this happens, you know, because you can't just not go to places that you don't want to go to. Now, church is a, a different thing and every family is going to feel differently about that. But, you know, like say this was school, you can't just say, I don't want to go to school today at the last minute. You know, we need to communicate better about what's going on. And so we talked about that and we talked about how she can communicate her needs more clearly to us, but also how can we hear her better when she's having a hard time communicating her needs. And so we had a really good conversation and I don't think it's going to be perfect the next time. She might in September say, I'm I'm not going to school today, five minutes before she needs to leave. And and I, I, I might forget all of this. I might forget how to do it. But I can rely on that idea that children do well when they can, and I can I can go from there and try and figure out, okay, what is she trying to tell me? Why is this so hard for her? And I can I can figure it out. Okay. Hopefully that makes sense. So that good conversation that we had where we we talked about 
how can you do better next time? How can we do better next time? That only came about because I remembered that children do well when they can. And my husband too. I'm talking about me. This this was, we were doing this all together. Um, it took our daughter's migraine for us to be reminded of that concept that children do well when they can. And I, I really am sorry about that. I, I wish I hadn't done that to her. But the phrase still helped us get back on track. This mindset is so powerful, whether you're, you remember to use it during a meltdown or you use it to repair when you forgot to use it earlier. And it's very effective at helping us to stop and reflect instead of jumping to moralizing or ranking our kids' emotions and reactions. So to sum up, our children deserve to be loved as they are, right? Now that's a simple enough concept, but it's not so simple to put into practice, it turns out. And I think we should acknowledge that as parents. We want to love our children as they are. We expect that we will, but sometimes we have a hard time accepting the things that challenge us. So rather than feel ashamed about that, let's accept that this is a human issue and work to positively get better. And two ways to do that are to use those two mindsets that I've been talking about in this episode to help us get better at accepting our children. So the first mindset is to meet our children where they are. Remember Caesar the cat. He needs to be treated gently if he's going to stick around. Our kids need to be treated in unique ways. Each child has different ways that they want to be treated. And as we connect with them, then we can understand those individual needs better. And then the second mindset is that children do well when they can. Use it during a meltdown to center yourself and realize that your child's meltdown is communication. Or if you miss the window, like I did with my daughter's refusal to go to church, use it later to recenter yourself and apologize and problem solve. I hope this has been helpful to you. I saw a meme from the Instagram handle, uh, it's at coffee and co-sleeping, and it said, you're finding motherhood hard because it is. That doesn't mean you're failing. And I love that because you know what, parents, this is hard work, but you're in it, you're doing it, and you're showing up again and again. You aren't failing. You're doing incredibly hard work and you're doing it better than you think. Now, if you need a little extra boost to help you with this, check out my resources at rebeccabrownwright.com. You can start small in connecting with your child with my back and forth journal, or you can go all in, which I recommend, and take my self-guided parenting course called How to Stop Yelling. It's gentle, encouraging, and life-changing, and I'll link to both in the show notes. Have a wonderful day, and remember, you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you so much for pausing and connecting with me today. Your support seriously means the world to me. If you found this episode helpful, I want you to know I have countless other resources for you to find more connection in your motherhood and life. Head to my website, rebeccabrownwright.com to check out my blog, check out my back and forth journal for parents and kids, and take a look at Pause and Connect Academy, where you can find courses to help you stop yelling, find your strengths, and finally get your kids to listen to you. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a positive review, sharing it on social media, or sharing with your friends. I love you, and I want you to thrive in your motherhood and life. Thank you for being here. Now go forth and connect.